Okay. Hey guys, welcome to the Two Age Sojourner podcast. I'm Andre. I'm a pastor at Bethesda Baptist Church in Felixstowe in the UK. Uh, and normally, um, it won't just be me here. Normally, it's you're, you're jumping into the hang time with uh, with me and my brother, who's a pastor, Mike, over in uh, New Zealand in Wellington. And uh, really, we just have a conversation and chat about stuff, and we press record, and then we put it out there, and hopefully, it's helpful. Um, and what we were doing last time, because Mike's not well, and this is meant to be a conversation, but it's really hard to have a conversation when you're the only one here. So I've had to bring in some guests, uh, but they're not actually with me, and they don't actually know me. Well, one of them has technically met me before, um, but what I did last time was we started to have a little bit of interaction with a recent conversation between Flame, who's a Lutheran rapper, and Dr. Jordan Cooper, who's a Lutheran theologian. Um, I think uh, Flame has studied um, Lutheran theology as well. So he, both of them come from a Reformed background, which is my background. I'm Reformed. Reformed means that you subscribe to one of the confessions of the Reformation. Um, and uh, so I'm a, a Reformed Baptist. I'm a 1689er. Uh, although I really, really, really love the other Reformed creeds as well. Um, and all the historical creeds that, uh, uh, you know, up to the kind of Nicene Athanasian creed. Um, so kind of, that's my thing where I'm coming from. And so I'm, I have a natural curiosity to know why someone would leave the Reformation tradition when I think to myself a bit like Reformation isn't the Reformed faith grand. I think it's the truest expression um, of biblical Christianity that we have articulated in, in kind of confessional creedal form. And um, not saying that the, there aren't any kinks to be worked out, but I, you know, as I look across the, the traditions in the church, I just think this is uh, doctrinally um, the, the most accurate expression of what the Bible teaches. But, um, so I'm curious to know why someone would leave that for Lutheranism, which to be honest, not many of us know about, know much about. It's kind of weird and wonderful and wacky. Um, and like the, the kind of awkward cousin of the Reformation who doesn't want to hang out with the rest of us, or, or maybe that's not fair, who doesn't hang out with the rest of us. Um, but guys like Jordan Cooper are trying to change that. And guys like Flame are trying to popularize Lutheran theology. And I think that that is a good thing because I think um, the critiques of Reformed theology from a Lutheran perspective um, I think are very, very helpful. They could just as easily, in my mind, be critiques from within the Reformed tradition. Uh, I don't think there's anything inherently Lutheran about um, a lot of what um, Jordan Cooper and Flame will say um, in their exposition of the passages we're going to look at today. Um, there are some distinctives. There is some very, very real differences between Lutheran and Reformed stuff, mainly to do with the sacraments, mainly to do with the five points of Calvinism. Um, and I went through those in the last video, so I'm not going to go through those again. Just to, if you don't know what they are, it's the five points of Calvinism, Calvinism are tulip. They're a, uh, a, a summary that are kind of like, they're a very modern summary of some very ancient uh, truths. 
and they aren't always helpful in their form, like limited atonement. It's not really a helpful way of putting it. But uh, it, if you don't have limited atonement, you can't spell tulip. So what can you do, man? What can you do? Um, right. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, that's right. So we're going to do this, and I'm going to carry on with that discussion. So if you missed part one, you might want to go back and have a look at that. But if you didn't, don't worry, because what we were talking about uh, was generally the whole, which tradition gives the Christian greater assurance? Uh, is it the Lutheran or is it the Reformed guy? And as we we're looking at that, um, we saw that um, some of the, the critiques of uh, the Reformation uh, were not quite 100%. A lot of it was blamed on limited atonement, which we just don't want to go along with. But a lot of the stuff they said, I think, I agree to 100%. Now we're going to get into the nitty gritty. So we, we've dealt with the abstract, the principles, the introductions. Now we're going to go into the text. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I've got my, um, I've got my Reformation study Bible ready to go. So I'm not biased at all. I'm totally open-minded about this, but nevertheless, I have this, the cloud of witnesses with me. And, um, and we're going to look at some text. We're going to look at three passages uh, in this session. We might get a bit further, but I don't know, because i got to lead to go to a meeting pretty soon. And so we're going to get as much as we can done uh, in the time that we have. So uh, the first passage we're going to look at is Matthew 7, verse 15 to 23. The second passage we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 13. It's, sorry, 2 Corinthians 13. Or 2 Corinthians 13. And then we're going to go to 1 John. Um, key passages uh, that come up in the, to what extent do you put your, uh, base your assurance on uh, what you see happening in your life, the transformation, the work of the Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit of Christ-likeness in you. To what extent do you base your assurance on the objective finished work of Christ at the cross? Um, just in case I forget, because I did kind of last time, the principle that I work to is this. Assurance can only be grounded on the finished objective work of Christ outside of us. If you are looking to yourself to gain assurance, there is a problem that is an inconsistency with justification by faith, I feel. So um, I think that the, the only grounds of hope of heaven is the gospel. And assurance is that. Assurance is the hope that I am going to enjoy eternal life in the presence of my creator, in the presence of my savior. And my hope for that, if you believe the biblical gospel, is nothing in myself but totally what Christ has done, not my merits, not my works, but his merits and his works, not my obedience, but his obedience, not my, my godliness, uh, but his godliness. Um, and, uh, and if you're looking in yourself to see whether or not the good outweighs the bad and that that's always going to be a treacherous territory. And to be honest is more akin to um, more consistent with a covenant of works or legalism than it is uh, consistent with the covenant of grace and the gospel. So that being said, that's where I'm heading, but, but it is inevitable. There is 
a place for some self-examination, for some self-reflection. There is a place for that. And what we're looking at now is, well, what is the place for that? It's not a case of either or, but it is a case of putting these things in their proper positions. One is the foundation. One could, there is only one foundation here. Um, and every, everything else fits in somewhere else or in the tension. You've got to keep them in the right tension. And uh, I think my uh, way of viewing it is uh, borrowed from Dick Lucas, which is very, very helpful. He was a, an Anglican uh, vicar here in London, um, uh, sort of quite famous here for his expositional preaching. And in his series on 1 John, he made this great distinction between uh, assurance, which is gained by the finished work of Christ objectively, and only that, and reassurance, which is when you can find encouragement by seeing God at work inside of yourself. So you, you gain assurance only from looking to the external objective work of Christ. You gain, um, uh, you gain, you can be reassured or encouraged by seeing God at work within you, the work of the spirit. That's the sanctification may encourage you in your journey, but if you're looking to it for assurance, you've become a, um, you've got things the wrong way around. Okay. So with that in mind, I'm going to hand over. Uh, so I'm going to do this little share screen thing. I'm going to hand over to Dr. Cooper and flame, and I'm going to pause it from time to time and then give comments. But really, I, I just want to say right up front that I agree with, um, a lot, a lot of what they're saying. Might put in a caveat one or two, but their exposition is my exposition largely. So let's just, uh, this is our hand over them. Cell phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have the holy writ on papyrus. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got basically three, I think, that we want to talk about. Yeah. We've got First John, we've got Second Corinthians 13, and then we've got Matthew 7. So where do you want to start? Let's, uh, let's jump in head first with uh, Matthew 7. Okay, Matthew 7. Yes. This is one that hits hard. For oh, my people. goodness. Yeah, this this is the this is the boogeyman to the believer if yeah. you don't understand yeah. it rightly. And uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you want to? Should we read this or? Yeah, let's read wanna... it. We can go ahead and read it. Um, where should we start? At the top, at the tippy. Um, Hold on, let me see. Yeah, probably Matthew seven, starting in verse fifteen through twenty-three. All right, here we go. And I think we've got to get the whole context because I think that's what's missing in a lot of a lot of the times that this is spoken about. I agree. Okay, I'll jump in there. Verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing by inwardly, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you workers of lawlessness. So that could sound pretty harsh, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Jesus is being pretty harsh here. And Thanks. I, I think when it's often talked about, in, in especially more Calvinistic Baptist context, probably, at yeah. least in my experience, it's, it's often start, the section often starts when it's read at verse 21. Oh, yeah. And, right? I mean, that's, that's what I usually hear is, hey, you better make sure you're not one of those who says, Lord, Lord, but, but you don't enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. So you've got this kind of nagging, like questioning and doubt there all, yeah. all the time. Um, but if you really start and look at the actual context, mm-hmm. Jesus is talking about something very specific. And what he's not saying here is, hey, you, here's, here's a test for if you're saved and you better keep making sure you go back to this over and over again daily to make sure you're really bearing, bearing fruit. Yeah. But he's talking, he's warning people against false prophets yeah. and because Jesus knows that uh, when, he, when he departs at his ascension, um, the Spirit's going to come at the church on Pentecost and basically immediately they're going to be false teachings. And we see this throughout the rest of the New Testament. I mean, he knows this is happening. So there are going to be people that are using the name of Jesus to spread false teachings in all different ways. And some of these people are going to be making prophecies in the name of Jesus, as they say. And they're going to be seemingly casting out demons and seemingly doing mighty works or, or even the miraculous. So these are people that may appear to be those who are following Jesus, but they bring, are bringing in false teachings. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is giving a warning to the church, to the apostles who are then going to be the leaders of the church in the book of Acts, um, and then the church after that as well, to beware that there are going to be these people who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And I think it's really important that, you know, he says this after he says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look at the application in verse 20. He doesn't say, therefore, make sure you have good fruit. The application is, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Mm. So the point is you'll see when you're, you are to judge those who are teaching in the church because there are going to be those false teachers. And you have to look at the fruits of those teachers. And the fruits, I think, includes doctrine as well. Yeah. What, what is the doctrine that they're teaching? And I mean, you can see this today with people who are clearly false teachers who you can see are using you know the gospel as a platform for their own gain and doing living in ways that are clearly completely inconsistent with scripture that do demonstrate what the matter of the heart is so this is a test not for us to be introspective but to look to those who are teaching to see if they're bearing the fruits that are consistent with the christian faith to know that they're preaching the true gospel Um, so with all that being said, it really is, it's a misuse of that text. It's just not the context. Now, does that mean that, you know, everyone who is... Right. Um, so a couple of points there. First of all, I agree 100%. I think that that is um, a great exposition of the passage. I think it's often overlooked. I think uh, passages like this can be brutal for Christians with a sensitive conscience. Um, thinking, oh goodness, I know that I personally have been terrified uh, by this passage in the past. Um, and so I agree 100% with that. I don't think there's, there's, um, uh, there's any hesitation from a, revo- a reform point of view. I, in fact, I can add detail to that. So um, one of the things that is clear is that when you get to verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father in heaven 
on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? So um, clearly the kind of things that Jesus is setting up as a false standard. So when somebody says, Lord, Lord, and it, Jesus says to them, away from me, I never knew you. Um, what he's not saying is that the Christian who is trusting in Jesus and, and seeking to obey Jesus and is just not sure about whether or not they're doing it properly, um, you know, obey the will of my Father in heaven. We tend to hear the word obey and rush straight to obey the law. But remember, the will of the Father is to believe in the Son. First and foremost, that's primarily, fundamentally what the will of the Father is, that we would come to the Son and come to him th through the Son. So um, uh, th that's made very, very explicit in John's gospel. And so I think it's, it's absolutely fair to read that here. Um, um, it's also very, very explicit coming up in, in Luke's gospel. Uh, sorry, in Luke's gospel as well. So it's not just John. It's also in the synoptics. Uh, it's been a while since I've been into Matthew, but it's, it's, it's there in Matthew too. The primary purpose of these gospels is to get us to put our faith in, to repent and believe in Jesus. That's the primary purpose of the gospels. So um, I, I think that it's a mistake for us, A, first to see that this is primarily aimed at the average Christian in the pew rather than to potential false teachers. I think they, their point is absolutely right, that whenever Jesus is at his most harsh, it's almost always because he's directing it at the religious leaders or the false teachers. Just a general rule of thumb. It's not always the case, but as a general rule of thumb, it does work. Um, the... Uh, but the other thing to recognize is that the false Christianity isn't the Christianity of someone just going around not sure if they're loving people enough. The false Christianity is somebody who's relying in the performance of the miraculous. So in other words, I think the people who really need to sit up and pay attention to something like this might be those traditions within the church where they focus on healing and the miraculous and the casting out of demons. They're not proof of anything. Um, and that applies to the Roman Catholic exorcist. And so I know I've heard Roman Catholics talk like this. Oh, we're the only ones who can do exorcisms properly. And so therefore Roman Catholicism is true. Well, Jesus says that's very much a false standard. Um, the other thing is that if you can perform healings, that means that God is in approval of what you do. False standards, says Jesus. Um, miraculous powers, whatever that is, false standards. Success, false standard. This is, uh, it's obedience to the will of the Father, which is first and foremost to trust in the gospel. Um, so uh, I think we can add detail, but it's great. It's great. But my question is this. My question is, um, uh, so I, I mean, please listen to them. And I think that I have experienced, I've taught this, if I'm honest, I've taught the, I never knew you to be a harsh criticism. Sorry, there's someone banging at the door. I'm just going to ignore them. I think they're delivering a toy orca. So they should just, they should just leave. Yeah, they're gone. Okay. So, um, the, uh, uh, lost my train of thought. God, the orca, the orca's in my mind now. Orca. I'll get my to this. Right. Anyway, so um, 
I think this is a, a very helpful critique from Lutheran perspective in the sense that I think a lot of uh, Protestant churches do this. It's not just Reformed churches. Protestant churches will teach this and terrify the daylights out of, out of people. And that terrifying might have a healthy effect on people with a kind of hard, uh, a lack of sensitivity to sin and um, kind of a, a stubbornness about them. But to sensitive Christians, Christians with a sensitive conscience, uh, it's devastating. So I have to put it in the context. It's not like there's no application to us. It's not like you should read this passage and think, I shouldn't examine myself at all. But you've got to put it in context. And then you can say, right, am I doing this? Am I trusting too much in outward impressive demonstrations of power? Um, when in actual fact, I'm not trusting in Christ and I'm not seeking to obey him. Um, that would be a false, a false standard. So we've got to do a little bit of both, um, which is going to go on to say, but my big question is this, um, why is this necessarily a, a, a Lutheran thing? So like, um, there is absolutely nothing inconsistent with, with that, with the reform point of view. It's just it's what I think I'm reformed. So maybe I'm more Lutheran. I am a Lutheran Baptist. Now, I have said that before. It's my term. I'm trying to coin it. I'm a reformed Lutheran Baptist. Okay. Now with that, um, enough nonsense for me. Let's get back into the, uh, the video. So here we go. Who is truly saved will bear good fruit. Yeah, of course. I mean, scripture is very clear about that. Um, but this doesn't say that you therefore must continue in this practice of constant introspection to make sure those fruits are really there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's excellent. That's the complete opposite of how it's taught and applied. Right. And um, for that reason, many people live underneath that fear that they will be surprised when they stand before God. Exactly. Christians who are trusting the Lord by faith um, and who, who are concerned with you know, their neighbor unfortunately live underneath this frightening thing that might happen you know because it sounded like these guys were doing a good thing they were preaching in his name they were casting out yeah. demons and and what we do is we apply that to our ministries if you will or our efforts of goodness in the world and we say there's a parallel there you know i do mission trips i preach i share my faith on a job so if they were doing what i'm doing maybe i'll hear what they heard, if right. I don't continue to look in and check and make sure I'm on par, affections and, and, and footsteps that follow. Yeah, I mean, if you... But, uh, Flames has made an excellent point there as well. The real heart of this and why this matters so much is because you're asking essentially, um, uh, what does, what does, uh, um, what does or should the Christian anticipation of the final day of judgment be? Should it be one of fear uh, because we do not know the outcome? Um, and so kind of a fear mixed with a kind of hopefulness, but also an anxiety. I hope that it's, I'm gonna be not gonna be one of those guys who says, he says, Lord, Lord to you, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, um, or is the intention that Christians look forward to that day with, uh, sure, an, an element of fear because God is so awesome that you, when standing in his presence, fear is inevitable. We are creatures. He is the creator. We are finite. He's eternal. I mean, there's going to be 
um, there's definitely going to be some very, very deep humbling going on. We are going to be afraid in that sense. We've never been in the presence of such majesty and power. It's going to be truly awesome and terrifying and wonderful. But is it, um, is it that we don't know the outcome of that day? We had this discussion a little We did a video um, with all four of us a few, uh, a little while ago on final judgment, where this really came to the fore. What is the tone of that final day? Is it one of, of I'm not sure, I hope, but I'm not sure. I'm trusting, but I'm not sure. Or is it one of, actually, I'm looking forward to this day. Come, Lord Jesus. And obviously, I favor the, the latter. Um, and I think that Flames put his finger on it there because uh, that is exactly the issue at stake here. Um, the, pur the purpose of these passages is not to create uncertainty. This is the great promise of the gospel the good news is that because of what Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection, we now no longer fear condemnation. Um, simply through faith in Christ, we fear no condemnation. I think that's, this is the good news. This is why it's such a travesty when you go across to Roman Catholicism and you see that actually they're saying you can't be certain. So the gospel becomes sort of maybe news, like it may be good, maybe bad, uh, it, it kind of just depends really. Um, and uh, the gospel isn't that for the Christian. The gospel is good news for the Christian. Of course, it is bad news for those who reject Christ. But if you're watching this, you're probably not one of those guys who reject Christ. So you're probably accepting him, wanting to grow in the faith. And you should, I think, be looking forward to that day saying, even though it's going to be an awesome thing standing in the presence of God, um, I know that he will receive me and welcome me into his kingdom because of the grace that I've received through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that's very, very important. Now, I'm going to jump ahead uh, at this point. We're going to go to the next Bible passage, uh, which is 2 Corinthians 13. So if you have a Bible, um, you can jump ahead there. So I'm just going to get us to that point. Uh, it's round about here. Um, just to say as well, I, I, I'm, I'm trying my best to give enough context to not take anything they say out of context. But obviously, I can't go through the whole video. You can see for yourself, it's pretty long. Um, so uh, I, I am genuinely trying to, to be fair. And if I do anything that is not fair, that's not intentional. Um, Mike, I, I, I'm just to be clear, commending this as a good thing. I think the Lutheran critique of us is a good thing. Um, I'm going to critique it when I see it, but I'm on the whole very positive about Lutheran and Reformed talking together. I think, as I said in the last show, that Lutheranism um, can benefit the Reformation tradition a lot, but I also think that Lutheranism is at its strongest when it actually, some of their... Um, uh, some of their points of emphases when they come out of a reformed system. I think they actually are stronger. Right. Let's uh, go back to them. We're going to jump to our next passage, 2 Corinthians 13. Look at this 2 Corinthians 13 passage. Second Pass, one of the big ones, definitely. Uh, verse 5 yeah, says, examine yourself. I do want to say as well, I really like Flame's hoodie. I just, I don't think I can pull it off, but it looks good. Looks good. Yeah. 
Also, I don't know if the kind of not having a zip thing would irritate me, like if it gets windy and it just sort of flaps around and yeah, but it looks good. Looks good on you, Flame. In fact, both of you guys look good. I'm gonna have to start dressing up a bit more if I'm gonna keep doing this thing. To see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to not meet the test. Oh, I warned you this would happen. Last time I warned you, I don't know how to get rid of the advert. So it's advert time. Uh, what I learned later. Boom. There we go. Done. Killed it. We're back in business, people. 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves. Oh, no. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Moving on, I'll just finish this last section off. But we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for the tearing down. Yeah, so there's there's the text. And I think just like these others, if you just read this without context, yeah. not thinking through what's going on yeah. uh, in the Corinthian church, you may think like this means that there's literally a test and you've got to check off all the boxes. Yeah. And if you don't check off all the boxes, then you're not in the faith. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there's again, it leads to this kind of internal introspection, trying to figure out if you're really saved or not. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a, a couple things we need to keep in mind uh, when we're talking about this text. One is the Corinthian church is in a unique situation, and then they're like a total mess, right? <laughs> if any church in the New Testament is like a messed up church, it's the Corinthians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're sinning in insane amount of ways, both in First and Second Corinthians. Um, we even have a letter from the end of the first century from Clement of Roma writes to the Corinthian church, and they're still a mess because they're still trying to deal with this stuff. So, right, right. you know, that's a really struggling church. Yeah. And uh, I think we need to keep that in mind as we're looking at what Paul's saying. Um, so one thing that's interesting, though, about the Corinthians, because I think um, if, you, if you think about that text as this is how you establish that you're a Christian, which shows up at the end of the letter, um, I think you're missing the rest of what he says throughout the letter. And I think what we should do is go back to the beginning. And if you go back to the beginning of 2 Corinthians and just ask, how does Paul address the church? How does he speak about them? Does he speak about them with the assumption that they are saved, that they're believers, and give them hope and assurance? Or does he approach them with skepticism? Is he approaching them being like, hey, I don't know about you, Corinthians. You've got to test yourselves and make sure you're in the faith. But the way that he starts is this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Acacia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So, and then he goes, he goes on and gives this, this greeting to the Corinthian church, but he addresses them as among the saints. Yeah. So it's really this assurance that Paul gives them as soon as he starts this letter. He addresses them as, you are the saints of God, you are the church of God, uh, you are his people, and then he talks about sharing in Christ's sufferings, and all of these things that just 
go off of the assumption that, that they're saved. Yeah. Right? He doesn't come in with this attitude of like, I don't know if you're saved. <laughs> I mean, and if Paul did that with any congregation or could justly do it, it was the Corinthians, yeah, right? Like, right. It, like if he's going to do it, he better do it with them. Yes. <laughs> so, um, okay, so we often think of the Corinthians as the write-off church. You know, they are just anything that could go wrong did go wrong. They're an absolute disaster. The really amazing thing is that Paul never once considers them uh, as going astray. Uh, he, as a false church. I mean, sorry, he does consider them going straight, but they're, they're not a false church. They are a, they're, they're a true church. The Corinthians, man, just read the Corinthians. One, two Corinthians, it's, it's crazy. And it's such a helpful point, you know, that every harsh word spoken within the context of Corinthians comes within the context of Paul addressing them as saints, as true, as a true church. Um, now that's not necessarily the same as casting, um, as casting um, a kind of blanket approval on every individual because there was an individual who was under church discipline. But I, I think, um, but, but that's kind of the point, you know, like th they were bad, they were weak, they misunderstood lots of things, they had a false sense of what Christian maturity looked like. Um, but uh, but when he writes to them, he, he never writes to them to say, you guys are in danger of not being a real Christian church. He just, he rebukes them and corrects them, uh, but from within the family. And, um, and so you can't pull verses like this out of context. Uh, just listening to, to that as well, I, I realized that maybe the fact that um, within the reformed tradition, there may be this tendency. I mean, there is definitely within some reformed traditions or, or, or reformed circles, a tendency to do this. And yes, I agree with him. Sadly, it is mainly the Baptists who do this um, because we do have this emphasis on making sure we only baptize people who are actually Christians. So I think it's a good thing. But but I think we need to do a lot less of the harsh uh, thing because it, it arises out of the Puritan movement and there were some great Puritans, but there were also some very dangerous Puritans. And Puritanism just came from a time of, of great complacency and nominalism within the church. And they were trying to, as a kind of way of doing evangelism, say to false Christians, nominal Christians, listen, you need to make sure that you in fact are a Christian. And so they were troubling people's consciences so that they could drive them to the gospel. And that's, that's a kind of best reading of, of, uh, of, of what the Puritans were, were trying to do in some of their, their harsh works. But it, it's almost like um, what I think the real criticism is here is that is not of the reformation, pure and simple, or sorry, that, of the reformed tradition, pure and simple, because from the reformation came both the reformed and the Lutherans and, and the radical Anabaptists. But, um, but, you know, we are all from the reformation, but uh, the reformed tradition um, isn't against any of the way of the emphases that uh, Dr. Cooper and Flame are applying here. I, the, it, this is very much in sync with the fundamental tenets of the Reformed faith. Um, there is no disjoint here. Uh, I think the issue is actually with pietism. 
pietism is the tendency to uh, to place a greater emphasis on our spiritual experience. And when you do that, it does take on a kind of neonomous legalist tone because you're looking within yourself. It's all about, um, it's basing your assurance on your subjective experience. It's basing your faith on your subjective experience. And that was, um, the, the Puritan movement was in large part a pietist movement, but pietism originated from Lutheranism. So I don't think this is, these sort of comments can appropriately be sent to the reform tradition only. I think you see it hugely outside of the reform tradition in charismatic churches. You see it hugely outside of the reform tradition on minion dispensational churches. Um, you see it massively in Lutheran churches who've taken on that pietistic uh, attitude. Pietism originated from Lutheranism. The Puritans uh, were a different kind of pietism that were influenced by that. You know, Wesley was influenced by, by pietists from Lutheran. Um, so uh, I, I, I'm just, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking the, the, the warning here is don't read these passages like a pietist. Read it like someone from the Reformed tradition or a confessional Lutheran tradition. Uh, right, let's carry on. Um, oh, the other thing just to say, um, and then we're going to jump to 1 John. Um, I can't remember if they go on to say it or not. Uh, but the, in fact, I don't think they do point this out, but I think it's very, very important that the essential uh, warning in 2 Corinthians 13 is... Uh, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. This is something he says, remember, in 1 Corinthians 11 at the communion table, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. So there is a sense in which you should examine yourself and ask, am I a Christian? But what should you ask yourself to find out if you're a Christian? Is it, have I obeyed enough or am I good enough or do I love enough or uh, have I done enough ministry? Have I given enough, you know? No, it's, am I walking in fellowship with Christ? Um, do I know Christ? Am I putting my trust and my confidence in him? So, um, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? So again, his assumption is that Jesus Christ is in them unless you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but I pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. So what's he talking about? What is the doing right? What is that test um, that he seems to be getting at? Um, in verse eight, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad uh, for uh, we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. So the issue is uh, in, in hand in the whole of 2 Corinthians is the threat of these other apostles that are implying to Paul uh, or, or sort of poisoning the Corinthians against Paul. So the danger is, uh, and Paul's concerned about not just because of his own pride and his own hurt feelings, um, but because if they turn away from Paul, 
and his gospel, they turn away from the gospel. So what Paul's really concerned about here is, and the good uh, that they need to do and the test that they need to ask themselves is, do they still believe in Paul as an apostle and in the Paul's apostolic gospel, or are they following a new gospel? It's the same issue as Matthew 7. Same issue. Um, so Matthew 7 is, uh, is saying, watch out for false teachers. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, so watch out for, for false teachers. Um, and here in 2 Corinthians 13, he's essentially saying the same thing. Examine yourselves to see whether you still believe the gospel, the gospel I preach to you. Um, so in verse uh, 2 Corinthians uh, verse 13, just before the examine yourself in verse 5, um, it begins, or, or, or he says in verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me so that's that's the thing the, the, he's saying to them and this um dr cooper does does draw out he's saying to them um you're looking for 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 you're testing me test yourselves as well you know you're the ones who need to be testing yourselves um i know that i'm going to pass the test because this is the gospel christ has given me but you need to pass the test do you still believe in the gospel christ has given me and so the whole issue at stake here with all this testing and examining is whether or not you believe that God is speaking through Paul or specifically that Christ is speaking through Paul. Um, uh, we're about to go to one John. It's interesting in one John, he says that, look, our prayer or our hope is that you have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with God and uh, with the father and with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can only have fellowship with Christ through the apostles, through believing the apostolic message. That's very, very important. It's very, very crucial. And it's interesting that all three passages are really making the same point. Matthew 7, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 John are all saying, don't walk away from the apostolic gospel. Okay. Uh, so with that in mind, let's uh, go back to the final Bible passage in 1 John and uh, we're going to jump ahead to about, no, why are you not doing that? I get it. Yeah. So it's only in view of that that he does give this warning at the end. Mm -hmm. And a couple things about the warning. Here we go. But if you look at the beginning of this letter, I think what a lot of people miss is the clear. Oh, here comes another advert. You ready for it? Is it weight loss? Is it how to play the guitar? Super fast Wi-Fi. Anytime, seconds, guys. Right, here we go. Assurance of forgiveness that starts the whole letter. Mm, um, yeah. And we see that here that, um, you know, because even when he says, you know, verse He's talking about the whole letter of 1 John at the moment. And I jumped in a little bit late. But the, the, the point he's drawing attention is that the whole letter starts with this great reassurance that there is forgiveness for sins. If we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Like, that sounds kind of harsh, right? Yeah. But then he goes on to say, to say this. 
If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just uh, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. So he's clear to kind of temper it to say, but if we confess, you're forgiven. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. So yes, you are to, to walk in life. You're living in this open, unrepentant sin. Yeah, yeah you should be questioning your salvation. But yeah. if you confess, that's a promise, right? There, there's a, a promise there. Yeah. He doesn't say, if you confess your sins, uh, you know, uh, sincerely enough. Yeah. If you confess your sins and you're really sure in your heart that it's true, if you confess your sins and the fruit is there afterwards, this is just a clear promise. Confess, you are forgiven. He is faithful and just to forgive sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. And that word all is really important there too, right? So this is clear promise of the gospel that pervades then and gives the context to everything else um, that, that is being said. Mm -hmm. and, and then again, in, ver in chapter 2, he says something very similar. You know, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he is encouraging them not to live in sin. Right. Jesus says, you know, go and sin no more. Yeah. We're not saying because you're justified, you live in sin. Yeah. But after that, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. And then he goes on to speak about the universal nature, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay. First of all, that verse is not about universal atonement. And I don't see how Lutherans could believe in that. The only person I can see who can hold to that verse with any kind of sound mind and say that that's universal is someone who believes that God is going to save everyone or that Christ has literally removed God's wrath uh, um, and uh, propitiated God's wrath for every single person in the world. Uh, propitiated just means turning away from, from God's wrath. Um, so Jesus kind of absorbs God's anger into himself at the cross. He propitiates. All of God's wrath is satisfied because it's poured out on Christ at the cross. That's what that's saying. And, and <clears throat> Dr. Cooper's point is excellent. That sets the whole tone for the book. So he's saying, listen, Christ has removed the wrath of God from you through his death on the cross. And now he intercedes for you. So in other words, you've got nothing to worry about. So don't sin, but if you do sin, don't panic. Confess your sins, and he is faithful and just and will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But my point that I made back in the first video, because Dr. Cooper and Flame were going after limited atonement, which is one of the, the L and the T-U-L, um, uh, limited atonement, which is that Christ died for his people. He died for the church. He died to save his people, the elect. Uh, those people who are in heaven, those are the people he died for. Um, and uh, the, the accusation or the claim was that believing in limited atonement weakens your assurance because if you believe that it was limited, you ask, well, am I one of the people that Christ died for? And that drives you within yourself. And I just think that's um, not a logically consistent argument at all because it's not only people who believe in limited atonement who go within themselves to find assurance. It's just, it's, it's not limited atonement that does that to us. Um, but also logically, surely knowing that Christ's death has in fact removed and sorted out the wrath of God uh, for you is a massive boost to assurance rather than just kind of made it possible or it's like potentially there or um, it's kind of like available to us. But at the, in the final analysis, we have to 
do something or achieve something or get to a point where that becomes true for us. And I, I think that it's doing that that drives you within yourself. It's not looking to the finished work of Christ that drives you within yourself. It's looking to an un or a finished but, but not yet efficacious work. It's not yet effective for us. Um, that's the kind of thing that makes me think, well, have I got to the point where I've truly received it? And actually his point is, no, Christ has already done this for you. There is a sense in which 2,000 years ago, the wrath of God that was yours to bear was born by Jesus Christ. And now that you have faith in him, you know that that is true for you. It's, it's, it's simple. It's simple. So stop going after limits of atonement. That's a weird way to interpret that passage. It's inconsistent with your own position, um, I feel. So, um, I, uh, okay, but, um, uh, but coming back to his, his whole point, you've got to read things in context. You can't read those verses later on in 1 John where, where hang on, I'm, I'm just going to stop the video here. Um, you, can't, you can't read those verses later on in 1 John um, where it talks about uh, nobody who's born of God continues in sin apart from the context of chapter one, where he says, if anyone uh, says he has no sin, he lies and the truth is not in him. So obviously what he means by anyone born of God uh, does not continue in sin does not mean never sins or has no sin in his life. Obviously it doesn't because it's a, he's contradicting himself plainly on major points. No, there's something else going on there. He's just saying you can't be someone who's comfortable with sin, endorsing sin, saying it's okay to sin. So the, the liberal Church of England vicar um, who's uh, saying that sin is okay um, is doing the thing in 1 John. He's a, he's a false teacher. Um, uh, John Cooper has some other excellent things to say, and Flame as well, on, this, on 1 John. Um, I just, I just think the arguments about limited atonement are bizarre, but I will, um, I mean, uh, I, I do, I, I do admit that I do not understand exactly how a Lutheran way of understanding universal atonement or unlimited atonement, sorry, uh, unlimited atonement is different from an Arminian way of understanding unlimited atonement. And I understand that then it's not exactly the same thing. So Lutherans are coming from a different perspective there, but it is a little bit difficult to understand because it, they sound reformed sometimes, they sound Arminian sometimes, and it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, to, to reformed and Arminians, it, it, it sounds inconsistent, like, like struggling to pick a side. Um, but... I think there is a kind of logical coherence. One of the things I like about Lutheranism is it does make sense within its own system. Um, but it is just, if you've been used to reading or thinking about the issues of say uh, the specificity of Christ's atonement or the, or the uh, universality of Christ's atonement, it's very difficult to, to come across and understand a Lutheran point of view. But the key thing about one John um, and they make great points. Please go and please go and uh, watch the, the video in, in, in its entirety. Um, and I think you'll gain from that. He also has recently done a debate 
uh, with someone on limited atonement. It wasn't, it wasn't a great debate from the limited atonement point of view. Um, but uh, it's, worth, it's worth a watch and it'll give you a sense of some of the dynamics of how Lutherans understand things differently. If you're interested in that, if, you, if you're happy, and it, as you know it in the Reformed tradition, clap your hands. Ooh. Uh, but uh, there is a thing. Ah, the, the last point to make about 1 John is that, again, another point of context is that the issue isn't so much that he's saying to every individual Christian, go and assess yourselves. So as Jordan Cooper points out in this video, it's again, it's about false teachers. So there's a proto-Gnosticism thing going on. I'm not actually 100% sure about that point, but it's, it is about false teachers and about false teachers unsettling the church so that they don't know what true Christianity is and what it is. So rather than saying every Christian go home, sit, you know, sit alone by yourself in a room and think about whether or not you tick all the boxes. Actually, I think the pastoral scenario is a little bit more like, let's say you move to a new town and there's two uh, churches in that town and they both claim to be tr true churches, but they both believe and practice very different things. How do you assess which one is real? And I think the, if there are any tick boxes, it's applied at that level. So if you go to a church where the leadership and the elders in the church are happily endorsing sin, they're continuing in sin, they're not acknowledging sin, they're not confessing sin, um, there isn't a lot of, you know, they're not encouraging the church to love each other. Um, if anything, there's a, a kind of backbiting and fighting all the time in the church. Um, then, uh, and, and most crucially, they're not holding to the message about, about Christ coming in the flesh and taking on flesh for us. And, um, and that's where the proto-Gnosticism thing comes into it. Because they'd be not, uh, denying the flesh and it would make sense of everything at a, at a certain level. I'm just not sure proto-Gnosticism's as much of a thing as people think it is. But the, um, the, the issue is, I think, much more at a corporate level. How do you know what a real church is? You know? But all the way through 1 John, I'm writing to you, my dear children. You know, I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing, he's, he's very pastoral. Um, the tone of it is very black and white, but you can't read one thing in contradiction to another thing. Um, so you've got to allow some statements to qualify as a statement. And you've also got to keep it in mind the context. The context is of a church split. And who do you follow? Do you stay with the original church that followed the apostles or do you go to the new church? that's following these other teachers uh, with a proto-Gnostic or, or whatever. And that's the, that's the issue. How do you know which way to go? Which, which teachers do I follow? Um, and that's why right at the beginning of 1 John, he's saying, look, follow us because we were there. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. Like we were there, we're the original eyewitnesses. So, you know, our, our fellowship is the fellowship that is with the father and the son stick with us. And so, um, uh, the, that's the kind of pastoral dynamic going on. Um, and so it's a mistake, I think, to use it the way that they, they mentioned sort of John MacArthur and I think Paul Washer does this too, but I think it's a mistake to take one John and turn it into an introspective checklist. Um, if you are, I mean, I, there are obvious cases for self-examination, but they are usually obvious. They're usually someone where uh, they are carrying on in continued, open, unrepentant rebellion those people fail the test. Um, but Christians who are concerned about this and who are troubled by it, who want to see themselves grow in godliness, but are just 
getting mixed results. It's not, not the same thing at all. If you say you have no sin, you lie and the truth is not in you. If you continue in sin, you are not born of God. So, you know, it, it's both of those things. Um, guys, thank you very much. There's more to say. They're going to come back and, and, and give some specific critiques on uh, the perseverance of the saints. And I want to get to talk about that as well. Um, who knows? Mike may be fit and healthy. He's in bed. Might be the coronavirus. Well, might not. We don't know. We're praying, praying the tulip reef for Mike. Um, so I hope he's, he's back to full health soon. Um, uh, and therefore some of the other guys back on soon, but um, uh, I'm definitely going to come back and finish this at some point uh, and pick up on the last part. Um, some great, great um, comments from the Lutheran world for us to take note of nothing there that should necessarily mean that I would have to become a Lutheran to, to agree with them. Actually uh, I think stronger if you agree with what they're saying from the perspective of limited atonement. Um, right. That's all from me. That's the end. Thanks to Jeremy Casello and Indelible Grace for the intro and outro music. It's awesome and sets the tone. Please go and find more of their music at uh, Spotify and iTunes and uh, look for it on YouTube and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you're not listening to Indelible Grace stuff, you really should be. So start doing that. Do it now and go to church on Sunday, whenever that is. Go to church. All right. Uh, if you don't go to church, you're not a true Christian. Am I joking? Am I joking? Kind of. Mm -hmm.